Hello, my name is Philip Miraton, and today we're going to have a conversation beyond science and religion. Now, one reason for this show is that I've never understood why there is not one worldview, one way of thinking, one idea that cannot explain the phenomena studied by science and the revelations experienced by religion. In this modern time we're in, I don't think there's any doubt that we're moving towards a convergence of science and spirituality. And this is something really exciting. Many of the guests on this show have pointed us in that direction or are giving us a sense that that's the direction we're heading. But any paradigm shift or revolution or changing of minds on a deep topic has two parts. There's the knocking down part of it, and then there's the building up part of it. There's something called deconstructionism, which is a big word for knocking down, and then there's constructivism, which is the building up. It is evidenced by innumerable political revolutions that are going on right now. The knocking down part may be the easy part. It's the building up that's the real challenge. Something must take the place of the old. If we're going to tear down the old ideas, we've got to have something better to replace them with. So in this show, we're going to talk to someone who's, who's done both, who both criticizes the current scientific worldview and then has his own ideas, his own theory of everything. His name is Thomas Fusco. He's the author of the book Behind the Cosmic Veil, A New Vision of Reality, Merging Science, the Spiritual, and the Supernatural. Welcome to the show, Thomas. It's nice having you back. Hi, Philip. Thanks for having me on. Okay, well, it's always, it's always a pleasure talking to you because not only do I think uh, we, we think along the same lines, but you always bring something invigorating to the conversation. Now, starting things off here, you, you talk a lot in your book about the current scientific worldview. What is it about our current scientific way of thinking that most concerns you? The best way that I could put it is that the predominant philosophy uh, behind modern science and, uh, of course, modern physics uh, is what I would call materialism. Uh, physicists like to call it physicalism, but uh, I call it materialism. And the concept behind that is that for every physical observation in the universe, you know, be it small scale or large scale, uh, there must be a physical, an equally physical cause for that effect contained in the same universe. And that has served us well and served science well for a long time, but in the last several decades, uh, we've run into a situation where our powers of observation through our technology has advanced so much, Philip, that we are now in a situation where we have significantly more physical observations, physical effects that we observe, than we actually have physical material to account for it. We have literally run out of material to explain everything we, that we observe. But, uh, you know, uh, modern science is very persistent in that materialistic worldview. And so consequently, when they run into these uh, quandaries, they have a tendency to make up imaginary substances so that they would have a physical cause for the effect that, that, that uh, is observed. Yeah. And I think right now this is where we're, running into kind of a uh, an impasse in science. Yeah, I think it's pretty remarkable, and I want to add my own little gloss to that. We do talk about materialism a lot on this show, and as Thomas said, it really is a worldview based upon matter, based upon um, physical things being the ultimate reality. But one of the spins I put on materialism is that not only does materialism hold that the ultimate reality is a thing or an atom, a mindless bit of nothing, but also that this matter is independent of consciousness or independent of mind, and that mind or consciousness came from matter. So that's, that's another spin on materialism. If you look up the term in, in, in Wikipedia 
or in, or in a philosophy dictionary, you'll get something like that. It's actually a very fascinating topic. But one of the, the things that the American public doesn't appreciate is that you're exactly right. It seems like we, we need a particle to solve every mystery in science. We need a new particle. And right now, for example, I know you read about this, but we have this mystery of dark matter. And, and dark matter, of course, is the matter out in the heavens that nobody could see or sense or, or touch or feel, but it apparently is necessary to, in order to hold the universe together. And, and, I, th and I think that uh, dark matter is a good example of what you're saying, Thomas, that you know, instead of science looking for a new theory to explain dark matter, they're looking for a new particle. Right. Absolutely. Right. And uh, the problem with this, of course, is that uh, we come back to the same kind of an issue uh, that we have with uh, what is conceived to be a gravitational boson or uh, what is most commonly known as graviton. And uh, if gravity, for example, is a physical force, then it must have both a wave and a particle uh, component to it. And yet decades of research has failed to find the existence of this particle called a graviton. And, and yet science works under the assumption that it exists. Uh, dark matter, you're right, Philip, that's a very, very important subject because here we have a huge physical effect uh, close to, well, uh, there is close to 90% more gravitational effect that we can observe in the universe than there is adjacent local physical mass to account for it. And so consequently, according to the established paradigm that everything must be physical, we make up this imaginary substance. And the thing that bugs me about it, of course, is it's not so much that this is an idea that's circulated and presented. Uh, from a material viewpoint, it is certainly a valid idea. But you'll see virtually everyone in the scientific community speaking about this as it's a foregone conclusion. Yeah. Uh, when they know uh, the truth that it is just a hypothetical substance and we really don't have any idea whether it really exists or not. The only thing we know for sure is that we have all this effect and we see no physical measurable cause for it. Yeah, I mean, when we have conversations like this, I'm thinking, gosh, Thomas, you're awfully, you know, you're being awfully radical right there. You're criticizing essentially the leading physicists in the world. But then I th sit back and I'm thinking, well, who's being radical? I mean, we're sitting here and I feel about I feel the same way about about dark matter that you do. But we're sitting here saying, well, if you look up at the heavens, you don't see any dark matter. It's called dark because you can't see it. If we're going to rely upon empiricism, which is the method of gaining knowledge using the senses, then there is no empirical evidence for dark matter. We know that something is holding the universe together, but it doesn't look like it's matter. Therefore, using the methods of science, I it seems to me that there is nothing really there, and therefore we need another theory. And it, it's it, this is so important because not only do we as a society spend so much money looking for these things that don't exist, but it puts us on a, the wrong track to building this new worldview that, <clears throat> that, I'm, that I've been talking about. I, I, I want to mention again this graviton, which again is another very important thing you mentioned. Anybody could put the word graviton into, your, into Google and it, it's it's essentially, as Thomas said, a hypothetical particle. It's the more honest folks will put an asterisk by it if you look at it, and it'll say, "Well, there's still it's a hypothetical particle." Some sometimes you won't even see the asterisk, and they'll assume that there is such a thing called a graviton, something which, as we know, has never been proven to exist. And I think partly because it conf it's, it underlies the contradiction between gravity. And quantum theory, which we don't necessarily have to get into, but the point is, is that modern science, as you're saying, Thomas, with this materialistic tendency, 
has us out there looking for a bunch of mysterious particles that most likely do not exist. Yeah, it's very problematic. And my argument uh, in this situation is this. Again, I'm not against uh, hypotheses with these kinds of, uh, uh, you know, objects, uh, that there are some particles uh, that are yet unknown and yet undiscovered. But what I say is that we should also consider the possibility that what we are observing when it comes to this extra gravitational effect with no local physical uh, cause uh, associated with it could possibly be exactly what it looks like. A gravitational effect with no physical cause. The problem with that is that the implication thereafter would be, well, if there's no physical cause and all effects must have a cause, then the primary cause for this effect must lie outside the physical. And this is something that is so abhorrent to most physicists today uh, that, gosh, it would be almost like somebody standing up in the middle of a, uh, a Baptist uh, <laughs> service and saying, I'm a child molester. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but as, as far as radical views, uh, this is something since we last talked, this is something that has come up, uh, that for years I have claimed that there was no such thing as this theoretical construct that the physicists call supersymmetry. Right. And this is the attempt to explain certain irregularities in the characteristics and behaviors of known particles by proposing a hypothetical particle that would be a heavier partner to the particle that's being studied, that hasn't been seen and discovered, but would explain certain irregularities in the way that particle that is observable uh, is, uh, uh, you know, is observed doing. And for years I've fought or basically have opposed the entire establishment of science by saying the supersymmetry does not exist. Well, late last year, they had sufficient findings from the Large Hadron Collider uh, over there in Europe, the CERN Collider. And they are now concluding, based on those uh, findings, that there probably is no such thing as supersymmetry. So here's something that my theory had predicted years ago, and basically I was standing out there in the field all alone, and it looks like I was right. Well, well, you might want to help the listeners um, understand supersymmetry a little bit because I do think it's it's important. And it's, and my understanding is that supersymmetry was sort of a, a a theory in order for scientists or physicists to explain, as you say, some anomalies in the standard model. I believe. Can you can you tell listeners a little bit more about what supersymmetry is about? Well, I can give you a real good example that uh, is something that uh, you know recently was in the news a lot, and that was the search for the Higgs boson. Right. And uh, of course, last July they announced that they found a Higgs boson, but it, if you read into it, it was still accompanied with uh, you know. Uh, kind of hesitancies and saying, well, we really, really don't know the full characteristics of this. We really don't know whether it fits the model that we have. We don't even know whether there's another particle that's at play in it. And so all the uncertainties that are surrounding it uh, uh, makes it another one of these kinds of things that uh, uh, scientists sometimes do, announce things to the public as established fact. When, in fact, that's not quite true. But to get to the point with supersymmetry, one of the fundamental models of the Higgs boson, uh, which is the particulate form of the Higgs field, the field is what is supposed to be the mass-inducing quality of the Higgs boson, right. that other particles pass through this field, and they get their uh, strong force stripped from them, and then they acquire mass. Um, one of the problems is that mathematically the Higgs field is supposed to have a value of infinity. Now that is physically impossible. 
There is no such thing as a value of infinity within the confines of the physical universe. Everything is finite and everything is determinable and everything is dimensional in the physical universe. There is no such, such thing as infinity. Um, in fact, when mathematicians come up with an infinite value in their calculations, they know that they have missed something or made a mistake. Something is not in the equation. Now, the standing theory, Philip, was that the Higgs boson was supposed to have a heavier supersymmetrical partner, a particle which was uh, which maintained a or established a sort of symmetry between the observable particle and the supersymmetrical particle. That in this case, the anomaly we're talking about here is that the supersymmetrical particle modifies and influences the Higgs particle so that it reduces or it changes the value of its field from infinity to a finite value. It's almost like, uh, you know, uh, putting a weight on something that floats so that it can sink. Yeah, I, think, I think that's a pretty good description. And, and let's face it, folks, supersymmetry and the Higgs boson are probably as esoteric as as you can get in physics. Thomas and I are going to do are going to try to uh, better simplify those terms uh, in a second. This is Philip Miriton. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. We're speaking with Thomas Fusco, the author of the book Behind the Cosmic Veil, A New Vision of Reality, Merging Science, the Spiritual, and the Supernatural. What I want to add here is that in the materialistic worldview, when something doesn't fit with one of the theories of science, scientists want to look for another particle. But what's happening is that no one particle or particles or suite of particles is solving all of their problems. One of the, one of the features of the Higgs boson, also known as the God particle, unfortunately for some people, is that it was supposed to explain, the Higgs field was supposed to explain how other particles got mass. Because one of the mysteries of the standard model of physics is why do the 25 odd particles have different masses? If the world began as one, why, why do all these particles have these widely varying masses, something like 13 orders of magnitude? So the Higgs boson is supposed to provide the mass, but then the question is, where did the masses come from? Why are the masses the way they are? That question remains unanswered. And I think the supersymmetric uh, particles are, as you say, Thomas, intended to balance out certain incongruities in the, in the weight or scale or energy level of a bunch of other particles, right? And so, and so it's sort of like, uh, if, putting band-aids upon a theory that's not working. Now, now I would like to switch a little bit right now to your interest in the paranormal because because you you rely upon the paranormal for for part of your theory. And I have a funny feeling it has something to do with the quote-unquote superphysical aspects of the paranormal, right? And, and so what is it about the paranormal that, that, that intrigues you in your, in your theory? Well, what, this, uh, what my work relates to, actually, the, the core of my work, is a new conceptual theory of everything, a new conceptual paradigm as to how the universe might actually be put together. And so when we are looking at a theory of everything, when we're looking at life, the universe, and everything, uh, which makes my work quite different than other people who have delved, delved into paranormal phenomena, what we have to look at is to understand that the universe is indeed a system, and that that system is characterized by and behaves according to a specific set of laws and principles uh, the universe is actually a highly constrained and ordered place. Uh, 
it's not random at all. The laws are very universal. And so, of course, we're still in the process of discovering those laws and principles, all of them. But when we have a body of evidence that we call paranormal phenomena uh, that we have to consider, then we have to come to the understanding that the laws and principles that govern the universe must also be able to explain paranormal phenomena. And the paranormal has been going on for a long time. Uh, so we know that it is a quote unquote natural phenomenon that occurs without the assistance of any kind of technology. So it has to be the, the me mechanism behind it has to be built into the laws and principles that govern the greater universe in which a paranormal event is a component of. And so this is why the paranormal plays such a critical role in trying to unravel the mystery of how the universe is actually constructed. Well, I couldn't agree with you more because this is what I said in the beginning of the show. If we're going to have a new theory, and I do think it needs to be a theory of truly everything, we have to account for the paranormal. And I've had guests in this show that have corrected me when I've used the term paranormal. It really is normal. <laughs> it, really, it really would be, in, in the right worldview or the right mindset, the paranormal would be normal. It would be something that is a part of the natural world, not something that is that came from outer space or something that only that is only found in science fiction novels or on TV shows. And I think that you know, Thomas, the way our current scientific worldview reacts to the paranormal, I, I feel like they put it outside the circus tent into the freak show, and so we call it the paranormal. You know, we call it something weird. When mm -hmm. when so many people, I mean, I, I don't know, I think the last time I looked, it was something like, I don't know, 80, 90 percent of people have had some paranormal experience, ESP or clairvoyance or, or synchronicity or something. Mm -hmm. And and it, it it boggles my mind, uh, and, and you make this point in your book that that the modern materialists must deny every of every claimed paranormal event that's ever occurred. That, right? They have to say all of them are all of them are wrong. Yes, if they if they venture to address the issue at all. Uh, most mainstream physicists will not publicly address uh, the the issue of the paranormal. It's like it doesn't even exist. Right. Uh, and the terminology is 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 difficult. Yeah. And and I agree with you. There should be a better term for it. But we use it because it's become known in in the language to represent the kind of uh, uh, anomalies that we're talking about. Uh, but yeah. Uh, the, it's the fact is that these things are observable and that the fact that they're observable makes them physical. If they were not physical, they could not be observable or measurable or even recordable as they are. And so if they are physical, technically speaking, physics, the definition of the physics is the study of everything that is physical. But while the discipline itself demands the attention to all observable phenomena, there's a difference between physics and physicists. And physicists don't always have the same agenda as physics does. And so this is one of the things that I brought to the table is a new way of looking at the universe that is not only consistent with these anomalous phenomena, but is also very sound from a physics point of view in that it, it uses uh, solid evidence and observations for its arguments. And what, of course, as you know, distinguishes my work than pretty much everyone else's in this field is that my theory actually makes predictions about the nature of certain aspects of reality that are experimentally testable. 
And so my work is a scientific theory. The example of supersymmetry is one of the things that my uh, that distinguishes my theory. It made a prediction. Supersymmetry does not uh, exist. The experiments have been conducted, and they tend to verify that prediction. Yeah, that that is something that I think is important. But I also I also think that one of the problems with scientific materialism is that it sort of defines the tools and the methods to discover reality before knowing what reality is. Whoever said that in order to be real it has to be measured by a Geiger counter or it has to be weighed by a scale or detected by some meter that that to me is is a little bit naive to believe that only those things that can be measured are real now I obviously it's a lot better if it can be measured and I think that it helps helps support the truth of the theory but science itself doesn't always follow its own method and we you know we've already talked about the the example of dark matter and dark energy is another one the dark dark energy being the mysterious force that is accelerating the expansion of the universe that science doesn't know what that is either although they've given it a name now this is Philip Merton. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. We're speaking with Thomas Fusco, the author of Behind the Cosmic Veil, who's got his own theory of everything called supergeometry. And I, I like you to outline this theory, Thomas, because I do think it's important, and I, I think you deserve credit for going out on a limb and coming up with something. But a lot of people probably probably don't understand what it is. So why don't you why don't you give us your your uh, summary uh, explanation of what supergeometry is? Okay, uh, and in fact, what you were just talking about, Philip, leads very nicely into this. Uh, when we talk about uh, science and and physics and trying to you know uh, assign a physical cause for every effect that's observable. And, uh, and you'll notice when I talk about these things, I try to stay very consistent in my terminology and uh, uh, certainly use a scientific uh, uh, approach in, in speaking about it because I think it's very important. But what we have is this. If we take a look at physics, I just mentioned earlier that physics is the study of everything that is physical. And so... For physics to seek a physical cause for every observable f effect is fundamental to the science of physics. Um, the reason why physicists don't look for anything outside of that is because it really does, in a sense, lie outside of their field of study. Uh, if it's not physical, it doesn't come under the, 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 the heading of physics. But this brings us to another point, and this is what the, to me, is the most important point. To verbalize, to crystallize, Philip, to, to cast the argument in a way that makes the most sense and is easiest to grasp. And what I do is distinguish the difference between what is physical and what is reality, because this gets often confused. Even by religious people, spiritual people, uh, people who deal in the supernatural, I see them continuously confuse this and not make the distinction. That's a great point. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yes. Now, what is reality? And it sounds like a, a kind of a, 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 you know, almost a comical question anymore, but it is a very serious question. So if we take a look at the concept of reality and look at it from that viewpoint, we see that physics, it integrated in its fundamental philosophy is a belief that reality is everything that is physical. And everything that is physical is reality. They're synonymous. My hmm. argument is this, and I believe it needs to be placed this way or, 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 or framed this way. 
is that reality is more than what is physical. That what is physical is a component of reality. There is another component of reality that lies beyond the physical. And this is the aspect of it that we cannot measure with our instrumentation or even observe it with our physical senses. All we can observe is the effect. So, for example, and this is why dark matter is such a, uh, a, a valuable concept to a materialist. Here we are, we're observing uh, close to 90% more physical gravitational effect in the universe than we have adjacent local physical mass to account for it. The classical understanding is that mass bends the space around it and creates the effect known as gravity. Uh, that's a relativistic viewpoint. But if we just accepted it for what it looked like, and, and I ask this in my book, I ask all astrophysicists to give me five minutes of their life that look out upon all of this additional gravitational effect, this gravitational lensing in the vacuum of space where there's no adjacent mass to cause that bending. And just for five minutes, consider that what you're looking at is exactly what it appears to be, an effect with no physical cause. Now, if you play with that just for five minutes, you begin to realize that, oh, well, maybe there is an effect, this gravitational effect, that has a cause that lies outside the physical. And then that concept just opens up a whole new world of, of considerations. Okay, and that, so, I'm sorry, and that, of course, leads to the question, which I think you're getting to, which is, which is, what is this non-physical realm? Yes, and so in my book, what I've done is given this realm, for lack of a better name, uh, the term supergeometry, and this is a very specific term. The reason why I use it is, first of all, I'm using the core geometry to imply an order and a standard and a structure, a matrix, a blueprint, if you will. Most even lay people understand what geometry is and can kind of wrap their head around that. Uh, and then, again, to be consistent with scientific terminology, Philip, in science, when we study systems and subsystems, we'll also have systems that we call our supersets of lesser systems or subsystems to that superset. So when we use the prefix super, we're not only using it in a scientifically consistent way, but it also conveys the proper idea that there is a superstructure to geometry. It is not physical, but it gives rise to the physical structures and orders that we see in the universe. Now, do you have a do you have an example of what of what uh, a superstructure would would be? Because because some folks might have a hard time getting their brains around the super part of the of the of the term. Mm -hmm. the The basic concept goes back a long way. Uh, it was first talked about Plato. He called them, he called it forms. Uh, if we look in the Bible, uh, the Old Testament uh, calls it the wisdom of God. And the New Testament, the first chapter of, uh, or the first paragraph of the Gospel of John, uh, where it uses the English term word, the underlying uh, Greek term is a philosophical term, which is logos. And that word has no exact English equivalent. It, it means mind, thought, idea, structure, order, matrix, pattern. It's that kind of an idea, but it's not physical. If we go into the 20th century, we have several very prominent and highly respected physicists, not fringe or quack or anything like that at all, that proposed the same kind of idea. David Bohm one of the most recognized and respected physicists of the 20th century, 
gave his version of it. He called it implicate order. It was not physical, but it gave rise to the explicate order of matter, energy, time, space, and all the structures in it. It sounds uh, to me. It sounds to me like something, and and I'm familiar with a lot of what you're, what you're referring to there. But it sounds to me, like some kind of three-dimensional spiritual blueprint. And and because it's something that gives form to the universe. Is that is that what it is? Yes, but when we're using the word dimensional right we can get into trouble uh this we started getting into trouble in the 1950s when the idea of other dimensions in a fifth dimension or whatever right. started becoming popularized popularized in the uh in science fiction of that era where technically when we're talking about dimensions we're talking about something that is physical so if we're talking about something that is outside the physical in this case, above the physical, or what I would call super physical, we're also talking about something that is super dimensional. It lies above dimensions, and dimensions actually emerge from it. Um, let me just uh, give two examples okay. real quick, Good. Uh, because this is very fundamental. What we're talking about ultimately is information. And this is one of the things that is so rarely considered by people that come up with all these alternate theories. And I've heard dozens of them. And virtually in all of them, they never address the idea of information, which is really the source of all structure. Uh, and modern science includes that. They say information itself cannot be created nor destroyed. But here's what we're here. Let, let's kind of get to the core of it um, by talking about the Big Bang. And, of course, there's there's some people that don't like that theory and uh, there's some alternate theories. But it seems like the more observations we come up with, the more that it verifies this model that the universe arose from what we would call a quantum singularity. And it's very important to understand what that singularity term means. Um, we have, in our physical space-time, we have variants, variables. And this is how Einstein phrased it. We have the variables of height, I'm sorry, of length, width, depth, and time. And everything that is physical is characterized by these four dimensions. And, and uh, uh, Einstein called them variables because their relative uh, relationships change all the time. A singularity has no variation, which means that there is no length, there's no width, there's no depth, and there's no time. Rather than having four variable dimensional coordinates, we have a single point without any variation. There is no difference if we talk about the spatial dimensions. We can express that very uh, elementary by saying that a dimension, a physical dimension, uh, a geometric dimension is an expression of the difference between here and there. When we talk about temporal or time, we can consider that a dimension that expresses the differences between then and now, or if in the future, when. Well, well, let me, let me just stop you there for a second because I want to get clear that I'm following you. Are you saying that, and I, and I understand that uh, some theorists believe that at the beginning of it all was a quote-unquote singularity. <clears throat> and I know that there's this quantum fluctuation theory out there about how something came from nothing, and that's a, a, a wild, to me, a wild theory. But you're right, it is, it is about the only thing they've got going right now. But are you saying that 
in your theory, even if we start with a singularity, even if the Big Bang is true, even if the quantum fluctuation occurred, and by quantum fluctuation, folks, I really mean that. I mean an uncertainty in, in an energy value in empty space such, such that somehow this quantum fluctuation morphed into a particle. It's much more complicated, but that's essentially the theory. So in any event, are, are you saying that this information field, this matrix, the super uh, uh, geometry sort of formulated or, or affected the singularity to like bring it into existence or something? Or, or well, how, do you yeah, connect, here's, how do you connect the two? Well, here's, uh, again, this is not a layman's type of a concept. Uh, this is something that has to be explained. Uh, you know, it's just like if you asked me about brain surgery, I right. couldn't, I know where the brain is, right. you know, but I don't know anything about it. So, um, let's go back to this quantum singularity, this idea, uh, because, uh, it's different than what you mentioned, like a quantum fluctuation where the variables are indeterminate in a quantum singularity. There are no variables. In other words, in a singularity, it is infinitely deterministic because it only has one characteristic, that it is a singularity, that there are no dimensional variables. So this is even different than what we normally observe on the quantum level. Um, the point of it is this. Uh, physicists say that this quantum singularity had was infinitely dense and infinitely small. And right there, we have something that relates to what I was talking about earlier. There is no such thing as an infinite value within the confines of physical space-time. So the implication is, of course, that if it was infinitely dense and it was infinitely small, it must be outside of physical. It cannot be physical. And the reason why this is a logical conclusion, Philip, is because if our universe of time, space, matter, and energy, our dimensional universe, had a beginning, the beginning could not have been dimensional. Because then it would be a continuum. It would be a constant state theory, the old constant state idea that dimensions were always here. In other words, if dimensions gave rise to dimensions, we would not have a creation. We would not have a beginning of the universe. The beginning of the universe is the beginning of dimensions. Okay. Do you follow what I'm saying? I'm not real sure, but I'd like I like to understand where where supergeometry comes into play at this point in time. Because what role is it playing in the Big Bang, if any? Well, here's what the role is that it plays. So the original quantum singularity had no variation; there were no dimensions in it, uh, and but it gave rise to dimensions. But here is one of the greatest mysteries that we have in physics, and we've had it for a long time, and we're really no closer to solving it than we've been. And that is that we do not know where universal order came from. Okay. We don't know where structure came from. For example, when the Big Bang unfolded, that quantum phys uh, singularity unfolded, and the primitive cosmic cloud, the cosmic soup as they call it, emerged from it. Everywhere in that cloud, the particles that we know today formed. There was no trial and error method like in evolution where things tried to assemble themselves this way and failed and tried to assemble themselves this way and failed. And then finally some atom self-assembled itself and all the other atoms in the universe propagated from that one, you know, parental atom. It didn't work that way. Everywhere in the universe, atoms began to form according to the exact 
same blueprint. In other words, matter did not establish its own order. A pre-existing order established matter. Okay, now we're talking. Uh, this is Philip Merton, and this is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. We're talking with Thomas Fusco, the author of Behind the Cosmic Veil, about his theory of everything entitled Supergeometry. And I think you hit on something here which is important. And I, for full disclosure, I'm not a big fan of the Big Bang. Uh, even, even if you accept the Big Bang, and there's so many problems with it, I don't have time to list them all, but, but even if you accept that there was this primordial explosion, you have to find a way for an explosion, which most people would think is a random, a completely random event. You have to find a way for an explosion to produce mathematical order. Everything, it seems like it goes in reverse. Usually you go from order to disorder, not from disorder to order. And so what you're saying, if I'm following you on this, is that supergeometry becomes an organizing mechanism? Yes, it is a pre-existing order, structure. Uh, a religious person, a Christian, might call it the mind of God or the word of God that existed that was not physical and that all the structures in the physical universe and all the orders and the laws and principles that we have all arose and unfolded from this primordial database. So this is equated to the mind of God or the word. It becomes the organizing mechanism or the pre or the order before the stuff comes on the scene. Right. Uh, and this, you know, dimensionalism unfolds from it. We might uh, take a look at uh, what they call a tesseract, which is not an imperfect model, but it kind of gives the idea of what, what I'm talking about. Um, if we're speaking strictly in spatial dimensions, length, width, and depth, uh, you have a line. Let's say we take a Euclidean line, and that's a one-dimensional object. It has length, but it has no width or depth. Square it to itself, and you have a square, which is a two-dimensional object. It has length and width, but it doesn't have the third dimension of depth. Square a square to itself, and you get a cube which is a full three-dimensional object that has length, width, and depth. Uh, if you squared that cube to itself, you would have a hypothetical particle or, or a hypothetical object called a tesseract, hmm. which is a four-dimensional object which is expressible mathematically, but it cannot be expressed or demonstrated physically. There is no way that you can draw, represent, model a tesseract because it includes a dimension that we don't have in our physical space-time to which our senses and our instrumentation and any means of representation that we would have for it is confined to. Now imagine further that these tesseracts are real and yet because of where we are confined to the physical all we can see are the physical aspects of that tesseract, which are the length, width, and depth. The fourth level of it, which makes it a tesseract, would be ever beyond our comprehension to view it. We would never be able to observe it because it is extra physical. It is super physical. And yet, our physical dimensions of height, or of length, width, and depth emerge from it uh it's almost like the two-dimensional creature that uh if it was confined to the surface of a paper a piece of paper and observed somebody three-dimensional creature writing on it they wouldn't be able to see the pencil okay. they'd only be able to see the writing appear is there anything is there anything distinct what you're what you're saying sounds similar to the view that that the mind of God exists outside of the physical world, 
but influences the physical world through supernatural means. It sounds very similar to that, but it framed in a more scientific way. Yes, uh, it's uh, that's essentially the idea. Uh, in talking about it in this way, I would kind of stay away from the supernatural word, even though it's accurate. Right. It still gets into more of the metaphysical and the uh, uh, philosophical, right. rather right. than just saying something that's super physical or super dimensional, right. which is much more precise scientifically. What my argument is in, in super geometrics, Philip, is that this process is continuing. It is still occurring today. And here's here's an illustration that I use that people think is, is, is pretty constructive. If you were standing on the side of a superhighway, on the uh, uh, medium strip, you would be watching all these cars go by at 70 miles an hour, whatever the speed limit is. And what you would be seeing is the fully materialized and the fully realized state of that transportation system. It's just like when we look out in the universe and even around us, almost everything that we can observe is in a fully materialized state. What we cannot see are all the processes that led up to that fully materialized and fully realized transportation system. We're not able to observe. We could even go back and, and say and talk about the mines where the iron ore is mined in order to refine it into steel. Uh, we can't see the refineries or all of those processes. We can't see the machinery that shapes the car, the chemical companies that make the synthetics. We can't see the blueprints that were used to design the car. We can't even see the people getting in the car parked in their driveway and driving it out onto the highway. We can't see that. We can't even see the contractor that came in and laid the asphalt and how the asphalt was laid. All we see is the fully realized part. But the, but so the, we, but the distinction that someone could say would be in the highway example, you could trace each each. Uh, cause to a physical or earth earthbound event what you're doing is as far as I can tell is you're is you're looking at the unexplained parts of the universe such as order is a big one <laughs> dark matter mm -hmm. uh, evolution the paranormal and and you're coming to the conclusion that that the only way to explain all these things is if there's some overriding organizing intelligence. And I'm going to use the word intelligence. I hope that you're not offended by it. I personally oh, not think, at all. I personally think that, that, that it's got to be intelligence because otherwise we would be living in a complete chaotic environment and we wouldn't be here since we are, some would say, the epitome of order. Uh, living creatures but the so so how do you how do you respond to the objection that thomas it sounds good but how does the super geometric dimension or the mind of god or the matrix how does it interact with the physical world well that's a yeah that that's a, a good question and and i talk about that that in my book and and i can explain that in a minute but just to go back to the point that you were making with my metaphor, which I uh, uh, said up front, it's an imperfect metaphor. You know, we're looking, we're standing on the highway and seeing all these cars whiz by at 70 miles an hour. Right. How do we know that all of that has an earthbound physical cause? Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. Yes, that's you see a, that's what a, I mean. Yeah, that's a good point. It reminds me of uh, I I forgot who it was. It could it was either Bertrand Russell or or Fred Hoyle or one of those guys who said something like you know how do we know that the universe wasn't created yesterday and and when, and and we've been programmed with these memories. I mean, it sounds I'm sure there's there's a science fiction or fantasy novel with that theme, but you're exactly right. We do assume 
that there is this physical cause or, or beginning to many, if not all, of the things we see. So I think that's a good point. So the point, yeah, and the point I'm trying to make is this. The reason why we do know that the effect that we're observing has got a physical cause is because not only have we been able to directly observe those causes, but we also know the laws and principles that govern the system that we're observing. And so even if we cannot directly observe a component that led up to the effect that's in front of us at the moment, we can derive that effect or that cause by understanding the laws and principles that govern the effect that we're observing. It's the same thing when we're talking about when you mentioned intelligence. Again, one of my things that I bring to the field is the way that I categorize things and look at things and classify them and describe them. The universe is a system. When we study subsystems in science, it's very scientific. We understand, first of all, we have a set of laws and principles that govern, establish, determine, and define the system that we're studying. Then any subsystem that emerges from that has to conform to the same laws and principles that govern the greater system of which that subsystem is a part. We cannot escape that. It, the subsystem will never behave in a way that is contrary to or outside of the laws and principles that govern the greater system that gave rise to the subsystem that we're looking at. Yeah, that's. Now, I think I would think that's. Yeah, I think that's logical necessity, depending on how you define things. But I think that's correct. Yeah, I'd agree with. One hundred times out of one hundred times yeah, in, in yeah. scientific study. Yeah. So. Now we're going to go into an area for a second that physicists run away from. They don't want to deal with this. But this is one of the arguments that I use to bring scientists to the table by force. And I tell them this, that the human brain is a subset of the physical universe. I don't like to use the word consciousness or mind when I'm talking about this because it's too subjective and ambiguous. Okay. But the human brain is a physical commodity. It is a known quantity. We don't know all the qualities of it, but we do know that it is a known, you know, constrained right. quantity. Right. Uh, the human brain is intelligent. So if the human brain is a subset of the physical universe that gave rise to it, how could the human brain uh, operate in a way that is contrary to or trans, you know, transcending of the system that gave rise to it? Therefore, if the human brain is intelligent, the universe has intelligence built into it. There isn't a scientist alive that can dispute what I just said. They just choose not to attend the table where that is being discussed. Hmm. Yeah, that's a powerful that's a powerful point. And you know, the funny thing about discussions like this is that there's multiple ways to get to the same conclusion because m most people, when you think about evolution, you have it's it, to me it, it's so difficult to imagine how something like the brain evolved from dust i mean you've got to have a wild creative mind to go from dust to a brain but if you start off with an intelligence it starts making a lot more sense now i i want to give you a, a chance quickly to tie in the 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 Bible here because I think that that's something that is 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 essential. As I started off the show, I said that one of the missions of I think of our of our era and I think of this century is to find a way to unite science and religion. And in order to do that, we're going to have to find a place for the Bible, the Koran, the Eastern. Buddhist and Hindu texts. We have to find a way to integrate these these texts into a world. We have to we have to understand them. And I know Thomas, you don't have time to to um, to go through this all. But why don't you just say a couple quick things about how the the, the super geometry theory opens the door to understand the Bible? 
if we take a look at the Eastern roots to their science, to their physics, not to Western roots, uh, they have a philosophy that's called Wu Li. It's a compound word, Wu and Li. One stands for form or structure, and the other stands for substance. And so we have order, and we have the clay that is shaped by that order. Now, we've been talking about information that comes from a superphysical source, which is the structure. How do we get the form or, or the substance? How do we get that? Because the substance is dimensional and it is defined by variables. Physical structure or physical form cannot be constructed out of a singularity. You have to have differences to have dimensions. With no differences, there's no dimensions. So where did they come from? Well, there has been, in many different religions, the concept of good and evil. And in, you know, modern religions, uh, some of them like Judaism and Christianity and, and uh, 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 Islam, they consider, they accept the existence of a superphysical, a non-physical personification of these two, what we would call absolutes, which would be loosely God and Satan. And these are absolutes. They're singularities from a physical point of view. There are no variations within them. God is absolute good, and Satan is absolute evil. So if a God who is going to create a physical universe that has variations, that has differences, the first thing that God would have to do is create a realm outside of himself because variations could not exist within him, his own self, which would be an absolute infinite singularity. You can't have physical dimensions within that realm. So in order to come up with differences that absolute would have to have an absolute antithesis. And so that's embodied and personified in the character of Satan. And where the two clash, we have what I call a zone of conflict. And out of that zone of conflict arises the pre-dimensional wave functions, which I believe that are actually described mathematically in what we call mathematical wave functions uh, that have no physical equivalent and yet they describe a wave-like characteristic. And it's super light, it's super luminal. And if you could imagine taking the two palms of your hands and rub them together to produce friction and heat, that's what this process is like, this difference intensifies and the wave-like functions become denser and denser and as they become more dense they begin to decelerate so to speak we're talking in a figurative way but at some point in that process they become sufficiently densified to be reduced to the speed of light and the second they reach light speed they begin to unfold into the dimensions of time and space. Wow. And that's how I, for the first time, have tied together traditional religious principles with the supernatural, with science, in one single cohesive model that encompasses the whole picture. Well, I have to, I have to say, Thomas, that I think you deserve a lot of credit uh, for taking the time to write your book, to research it. I know... I. It took you some a, a couple of decades to to put this work together. And and uh, listeners, if you want to have a a really uh, invigorating read, pick up a copy of Thomas Fusco's book Behind the Cosmic Veil, because not only does this book have a lot of really good research and information 
about science, the paranormal, and religion, but it's got some creative ideas about how we can go about combining science and spirituality. And we're going to have to do this. We're going to have to come up with different ideas, different theories, and test them if we're ever going to build a new worldview that will replace this disjointed one we currently have. Now, Thomas, I... It's always a pleasure talking to you. Every time we do it, it goes by fast, and we and we scratch the surface, although I think we got a little below the surface this time, hopefully. But why don't you quickly tell folks uh, how to find out more about what you're doing? Well, uh, the events I'm going to be at, uh, my blog uh, that talks about interviews and other things that I'm, I'm attending, uh, related articles, uh, descriptions of the book, and uh, also the links to where to purchase the book uh, are all available at www.cosmicveil, spelled V-E-I-L, cosmicveil.com. Well, that's, that's great. And once again, Thomas, thank you very much for your time. It's been, I hope, a mind-opening conversation. This is Philip Mirton. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion, and thank you for listening. Next week, by the way, we're going to have one of the leading paranormal researchers in the country. That's Ed Ozaski. So join us for a status report on where we are with research into the paranormal. See you next week. You've been listening to Conversations Beyond Science and Religion with Philip Meriton. To find out more about Philip and his new book, The Heaven at the End of Science, visit heavenattheendofscience.com. 